America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Joe Biden, barely standing. Nikki Haley, rising, at least a little bit. And this advertisement for gold, the only way to retain value in an inflationary economy, is brought to you by Bob Menendez. Move over, William Devane. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nash View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Maiden and Bambi. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we have another debate, Republican debate, nearly upon us. We're recording on Tuesday morning, as we usually do. The debate is Wednesday evening. Let's, uh, before we get into that in detail and some of our preview thoughts, let's talk about the after effects of the first debate. Macro, I don't think it really affected the race at all. I thought uh, DeSantis did pretty well on some of the immediate snap polling afterwards. You know, who won the debate, who do you have more favorable views towards, were uh, good for DeSantis. But he, he's uh, continued to, to flatline or, or worse in some places, especially New Hampshire. Trump, who skipped the debate, and a lot of the polling said, oh, we don't like it if you're skipping the debate, went up. You know, probably the mugshot effect. But Nikki Haley, in retrospect, clearly the winner of the first debate in the sense that she's gained the most. A discernible polling bump, a small one, you know, from five to nine or 11 or, or, or whatever, uh, a little more attention. And she gave uh, quite, quite a good speech on the economy. What are your thoughts about where Nikki Haley stands in this race? Um. Well, Rich, I should point out the last debate occurred while I was out in Ukraine. I wasn't able to watch it live. I watched some of the highlights and exchanges. And the prospect of the next one has me looking um, for when there are flights back to Ukraine. I'm not looking forward <laughs> to this. Uh, because it, it, without Trump on the stage, it feels much less relevant and important. Yes, I think it is very accurate to say Nikki Haley had either the best or one of the best nights last time around. And, you know, there's a poll out from St. Anselm that has her at 15% in New Hampshire, um, ahead of DeSantis. You know, that, that's, that's nice, I suppose. 
She's at seven in the morning consult poll, uh, you know, nationally. Uh, there's not, you know, a lot of sign that she's taking off. She's at seven in that Washington Post poll, uh, you know, seven in the NBC News poll nationally. Like, they're, they're like doing really well in the debate, that and a couple of bucks will get you a cup of coffee right now. And it's unfortunate because you'd think that doing well in the debate, like the, you know, the ratings were decent, you, you would think that would kind of, you know, stir some momentum, some some surge, some interest in the candidate. And it, you know, there was a little on the margins, but this doesn't feel, this, this isn't much of a primary. The, the, you know, the, the, the roughly half, in some cases maybe more than half, of the Republican electorate decided we're going with Trump. And they don't seem interested in, in hearing any counter-arguments. They don't seem interested in the pitch from DeSantis or anything like that. So uh, I think Haley has demonstrated she can be really good on that stage. I would expect her to be really good on that stage again this week. But I don't really know. Like This is a race not, not just for second place. It's a race for a really distant second. We're coming in at 15% is huge. And that's, I think it's a sad state of the GOP, but I think also kind of raises the question of, of what are these candidates doing there? And if you're one of those guys who's at 1%, like, what are you doing? What's the point? Why are you sticking around? Yeah, Noah, so Nikki and Tim Scott have been sort of, you have a tendency to think of them together. They're both from South Carolina, uh, both uh, largely traditional Republicans competing for those votes. And Scott had a, had a really bad debate. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. He was just, he, he was just basically not present. And Haley had a good debate. And there's a South Carolina poll the other day that basically showed that you know, she, she's, she's gained Scott's support. Uh, for what for whatever it's worth, in in South Carolina. Yeah, I think I'm going to be a little bit more um, uh, gracious, I suppose, to to Nikki Haley's performance because I do think it matters a little bit more than than Jim does. Um, I don't think that we're going to get two South Carolina candidates in the South Carolina primary. I think one's going to withdraw from the race, not necessarily because they run out of money. Nikki Haley's at more risk, I think, of running out of money before South Carolina than Tim Scott is, but there's, but both of them seem civic-minded enough to know that the multi-car pile up in South Carolina would all but ratify the idea that Donald Trump will sail to this, to the nomination by winning South Carolina and subsequently Nevada and then vaulting into Super Tuesday states with that momentum. But Nikki Haley's performance in that debate really did matter. She was in sixth place in the average of New Hampshire polls. She is now second, with a series of very consistent double-digit performances in the polling. And it's not just that she's gaining, but Donald Trump is declining. And you can see this visualized in the Real Clear Politics average. He's never been especially strong in New Hampshire, kind of steady in the low 40s. But now we have some polls, some reputable polls, notably CNN, UNH, that has him in the 30s. Um, That's not as vulnerable as perhaps Donald Trump's opponents would like him to be, but it's perhaps the most vulnerable he is in any of the states that have been pulled by reputable pollsters. And Nikki Haley's momentum does not seem to have abated in the month that has elapsed since the last uh, um, performance, her debate performance that got her into this position. And what got her into this position, I think, is fascinating because it is not appeals to the sort of fashionable, faddish populism that has overtaken the media uh, apparatus on the right. It's rather the opposite of that. Her economic speech was a a full-throated endorsement of free market conservative economics, supply-side economics. The debate performance that won her the plaudits of the audience 
was her contention that the presidency is not a magic position in which it can just do whatever it wants by fiat. There are limits. There are constitutional obstacles before us, and then we have to build consensus around the things that we want to do. These are extremely refreshing narratives to hear from any political actor on the right these days because they cut against what Republicans actually want to hear, and Republicans are rewarding Nikki Haley for saying things they don't necessarily want to hear, for failing to flatter their every pretension. So yeah, I think that's fascinating. Is it is it earth-shattering? Is it changing the dynamic of the race at a fundamental level? No, not yet. But there's still four months before anybody casts a vote. A vote. And Nikki Haley's performance has been really, really interesting. If she keeps it up after this second debate, yeah, I think there might be a lot of pressure from the donor class especially to rally around her as the alternative to Donald Trump in the race. Yeah, so Charlie, I still think a Nikki Haley or, or Tim Scott are probably too limited in their appeal to, to get a winning plurality uh, because they, they're just limits to how much they can eat into MAGA, MAGA-ish, uh, the MAGA-ish vote. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe that's kind of lane thinking that was, you know, blown up in 2016. And it could well be that, you know, v- voters at some juncture in Iowa and or New Hampshire just decide, well, this is our non-Trump alternative and, and we don't care. And we're, we're with this person and he or she surges. That's obviously not in evidence uh, uh, yet. Maybe it never uh, will be. And that that's kind of the is a segue to the downbeat thought about the these debates in the non-Trump field. I mean, you really need someone to be so commanding, so dominant uh, in these debates that they're, they're clearly better than the others and sort of begin to suck up all their support. And I'm just not sure that's that's true of uh, that, that any of the, the candidates on that stage have that capability. I'm not sure either. As you say, if she does win the nomination, it will be because the non-Trump coalition coalesces around her. I see no evidence at the moment that there is a big enough non-Trump coalition to do so. I don't believe in lanes. What I do believe in is separation. And what Nikki Haley has demonstrated, at least thus far, is that it does matter to be different. There is a lot about Nikki Haley that is different than Donald Trump, not just the fact that she is a woman, but that she is up there saying things that Trump is not in a way that he is not. And perhaps that is what Ron DeSantis should have done. Nikki Haley talks about entitlement reform. That's anathema to Trump and his movement. Nikki Haley is more hawkish on foreign policy. That is anathema to Trump and his movement. As Noah points out, Nikki Haley treats voters like an adult. She doesn't say, I alone can fix, famous Trump line from 2016. She says, we live in a country with a Congress and voters who disagree with us and a federal government of limited and enumerated powers. I don't want to get carried away with it, both because... I'm not some Nikki Haley super fan. I would much prefer her to Trump. And also because I keep seeing polls where Trump is leading everyone by a lot. But I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that she has departed in some way from this debate with a 
jump because she has decided not to do what everyone else is doing. Vivek Ramaswamy is running as Trump's valet. Ron DeSantis, although I think he's been a really good governor of Florida and has not been a mini Trump, despite what the media might like us to believe, has really been competing for Trump's voters in a way that at least thus far has not come to fruition. And Nikki Haley's thrown all that out and said, no, I'm just going to run as Nikki Haley. And it seems to be working at least better than I thought it would. I would be very interested to see what happens if other candidates leave. I mean, what happens if the 2 or 3% that hovers around Doug Burgum goes to Nikki Haley? If Tim Scott drops out, what happens, especially in South Carolina? Perhaps this will be the story. Who knows? Look, well, she ran differently and benefited from it. So, Jim Garrity, asks a question to you. Would you rather be, at this juncture, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley? Interestingly, I think Haley. Um, I think this entire primary required somebody in the Republican Party to stand up and make a case against Trump that went beyond electability. Uh, DeSantis is good at making that case against Trump on electability, but when a Washington Post poll, kind of previewing our next topic, comes out and says Trump is up 10, then the electability argument doesn't seem particularly compelling or strong. And, you know, those who are supportive of Trump are like, well, why shouldn't I? You know, like, wait, what are you telling me this guy's not going to win? Looks like he's got a great chance to win. I think somebody needed to stand up and say to the Republican Party, I like, you know, that, that Trump is, you know, political junk food. He makes you feel good. You get that sugar rush, but he's not actually good for your goals. He's not really good for what you want to achieve. He's not really good for both the conservative vision or just a generally uh, pro-American vision that you should not have a guy running around the country yelling, I am your retribution, uh, that the Republican Party has to stand for more than that. And she may have been the one who's come closest to this, um, other than like the the Asa Hutchinson's of the world and, and all that kind of stuff. So like... I feel like she's actually running a better campaign that by trying to finesse it and being not Trump, but Trumpy enough, you know, DeSantis has managed to not win over both sides. So I I think she's in better spot right now because she seems to be ascending while DeSantis appears to be descending. Uh, But who knows? Maybe he surprises us, uh, you know, tomorrow night and and shakes things up. Noah. Yeah, I agree with that. Marginally, I'd rather be Haley. Um, it, It makes you wonder her position right now it makes you wonder what we would have seen from this race if Ron DeSantis had a different theory of the race, if he had started from the proposition that rather than peeling off the few persuadable Trump voters he could and then presenting himself as the alternative to Trump and you have to just come and accept it, if he had started from the assumption that he needed to assemble as many anti-Trump, Trump-skeptical voters as possible from the start, present a minority coalition on that nevertheless on paper looks stronger than anybody else, and then approached Trump's voters from a position of strength, what the race would have looked like. Nikki Haley appears to be taking that approach now. And we do have a lot of game left to play. I suspect that Republicans who entered the last debate somehow convinced of the idea that Ron DeSantis, who was polling second to Donald Trump, didn't need to be attacked because he was his campaign was on the decline. That was the media narrative. And they just dis- declined to attack him. So he emerged unscathed. I don't think that will pertain in this debate. I do think he's going to be on the receiving end of a lot of attacks. And because Nikki Haley's, Nikki Haley's surge is nascent, I don't think she's going to be the target of as many attacks from her opponents. 
I did notice there was a, a little um, press release memo kind of thing that the DeSantis people released about Iowa and, and you know, how hard they're working in Iowa, et cetera, et cetera. And it did at the end. It included a little, a little jab at Nikki Haley. Charlie Cook. I don't know. I don't think that there is a great deal of difference between them in that they're both being crushed by Donald Trump. And I don't know which theory is likely to prevail. I can construct an argument for both. I can construct the argument that I just adumbrated about Nikki Haley and her separation. And I can also construct an argument that says, look, the second most popular Republican in the country for a long time has been Ron DeSantis. There's still more energy around him than there is around Nikki Haley. He has a lot of money. I'm told he has a good ground game in Iowa. I could make the state's argument for both too. My suspicion with DeSantis is he's going to come really close to winning Iowa or possibly even win Iowa, but then what? I don't know what happens next. I can't see him winning New Hampshire or South Carolina. Well, Nikki Haley's not going to win Iowa. She may do okay in New Hampshire. She may win South Carolina if she breaks out. So I don't know. But I think at the moment, it's just... (laughs) The story's Trump. That right. I'd rather be Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I mean, if you took a photograph of every poll from the last six months and you showed it to an alien, what would they say? Yeah, well, it's Trump. Yeah, you know, he's a little softer in Iowa and New Hampshire, but Iowa, you know, it's not that much softer uh, than than he is nationally and i i think charlie that this maybe this is one thing you're getting at there is uh it just may be that both theories of the race were um you know not crazy that the desantis one i i'm gonna get maga-ish voters and then just present present the establishment voters i i'm i'm the only alternative so come along with me and i you know i'm broadly acceptable to you I, that's not a crazy theory it hasn't worked um Maybe it's 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 not gonna it's not gonna work, but we don't know the Nikki Haley theory is gonna work either. You know, there there may be a, a she she may hit hit a wall there, and it just maybe there's just no way to beat uh, Donald Trump in this time and place. But to answer the question, I would still be Ron DeSantis. I think it's uh, he he does potential has the potential to win Iowa. Still, the odds are against it. He still has broader potential, underlying potential appeal than anyone else, including Nikki Haley. But it just might be that, you know, Ron DeSantis, even if he wins Iowa, he's Ted Cruz and he's going nowhere in New Hampshire and um, just is going to be too limited. And Nikki Haley is kind of the Marco Rubio, um, who uh, uh, just, just doesn't have quite enough to get it done. But we shall see with that. Let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when using made in products, and they can taste a difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made in, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Actis, and Stephanie Izzard and more Maiden's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer professional-grade non-stick coating. Maiden's stainless clad is nearly indestructible 
and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Maiden's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame, plus an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more, all from Maiden. We found all this to be emphatically true, by the way. In the Lowry kitchen, our Maiden pans are great to handle. They do indeed cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So Maiden cookware gets our highest recommendation. And especially, this is most important, my wife's recommendation, editors, listeners can get 10% off right now, full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. I guarantee you will not regret it. So... Noah, we have our favorite kind of poll, a shock poll, out from the Washington Post, ABC, that had Donald Trump ahead by 10 points over Joe Biden. There's no way Donald Trump is ahead by 10 points over Joe Biden. I don't. That would be his, uh, I, I assume, is the strongest general election poll he's ever had, right? He was losing by Hillary by 10 points for a long stretch in 2016 before the polls began to show it tighter. Uh, he was never ahead of 10 points by 10 points of, of Joe Biden in, in 2020. So this this is an, an erroneous uh, result and not so much an outlier as some poll mavens have suggested, but just uh, more there, there's some there's some sampling issue with the Washington Post poll that makes it ironically uh, more favorable to Trump and Republicans because they've, they've had uh, this ki- this kind of. Uh, results skewed this way before. But, 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 all that said, you know, you don't get a result that has you 10%, even uh, ahead by 10 points, even in a poll that might not be perfect, unless you are tied, right? Or, uh, or very close. And that's what all the other polls show. So, um, this should be sending, I, you know, just major shockwaves through the, the Democratic establishment. We're beginning to see signs of that real worry. It's You see some of it in the mainstream press, but they're stuck with this guy. Yeah, I've been seeing signs of that for a while, that Democrats have been confronted with polls that have shown the race tied within the margin of error or even favoring Donald Trump. When you have an, a set that is a bunch of zeros, a bunch of ones, a bunch of negative ones, and then a 10, yeah, you throw out the outliers. The top result, the other result, yes. And you get some, I mean, obviously, the the post ABC News post write-up of their polls is so humiliated because when they go into the, the sub-demographics, the demographics and the in the uh, crosstabs, yeah. uh, they're absurd. It's like Joe right. Biden is winning just half of African-Americans while Donald Trump is winning 43% of African-Americans, which would be the strongest performance from a Republican, I think, since Reconstruction. Um, winning Donald Trump is winning young voters, age 18 to 35, to the tune of 53 to 38%. I mean, I would bet my mortgage that that's not going to be what we're going to see in November of next year. And the key really is in these findings about who didn't vote in 2020, where Trump has a lead of 57 to 32% in this ABC News poll that is likely an outlier and not very substantive. And that's really the key to it. I mean, if you really think, as some have tried to retail, like Elise Stefanik and others, that this isn't an outlier and the elites are just trying to get rid of this poll because they don't want you to know that Trump is competitive. Well, that's the key to it, right? He has to win back voters he either didn't get in 2020 or who stayed home in 2020 to win back the states he lost. 
And the mechanics of that are what become very frustrating. Now, all that having been said, directionally, this poll probably gives you some idea of what voters really are feeling when it comes to things like the economy and the unemployment rate and food prices and energy prices and average overall incomes. All these things are directionally pointing to an environment that favors Republicans. Can Republicans capitalize on that is the court question. And I don't think this poll gives Republicans a lot of hope that they will be able to win back those voters that they've lost. But they are persuadable. They are on the margins. And they may be willing to vote for an alternative, uh, an acceptable alternative to Joe Biden. Because yes, every other poll suggests that this poll, that this ABC News Washington Post poll is correct, that Joe Biden's brand yeah. is in the toilet. Yeah. So, so Charlie, I think that's the, uh, Noah hit it on the head. That's, that's the key finding. It's consistent with every other poll. It's consistent with the NBC poll that basically came out at the same time. Joe Biden is just a, a disaster. If, if, you, if you took the, the age thing and put that aside, just his job approval rating and his rating uh, on the economy would, would be enough to, to have your hair on fire if you're a Democrat. But then you, you, you get this finding repeated in poll after poll after poll that 75 percent of people basically think he's too old to, uh, to uh, run for a second term. And, and this is why I've, I've for a long time now or for a relatively long time, you know, I thought um, Trump has a good chance in this race because it, it could be right that 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 all, all that stuff. It just it, it at the end of the day, when you litigate it as a as a choice, you know, with with Trump, who is uh, has made himself so radioactive in so many ways, that doesn't matter that that Biden's too old. It doesn't matter that uh, people really don't like what he's done on the economy. And it can be all about Trump and they can make Trump unacceptable. It, they, that, that's obviously very possible. But there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee of that. I think the key word that Noah used is directional. Imagine if someone came up to you and they said, you know, I hate you. I hate your face, which is ugly. I think you're old and embarrassing. What you have done professionally is below par. I think you're untrustworthy. And frankly, I don't expect you to live much longer. And I don't like the person that you've designated as your successor. And I would say there's about a 60% chance that I'm going to slap you. And you said, I think it's more like a 50% chance you're going to slap me. Would you feel better about that? I mean, the 10% here is not the issue, is it? The issue is that all of the things that I just outlined are what people think of Joe Biden. There's nothing positive in there. So yeah, maybe this is an outlier in the sense that Donald Trump's not beating Joe Biden by 10 points. But in no universe would you nominate someone with those numbers, with those characteristics, with that perception glued to them if that person were not already president of the United States. I think the press has only just realized that this is how people feel. What has not worked out yet, as I wrote yesterday, is that people feel like that accurately, fairly, credibly. This isn't some conspiracy. This isn't some problem of Joe Biden being filtered through the media. This is Joe Biden. He is too old. He is statistically likely to die in a second term. His vice president, Kamala Harris, is one of the worst politicians in American history. 
He has presided over a poor economy and made it worse with bad decisions. He is dishonest. He is almost certainly corrupt. He has offered up unconstitutional executive order after unconstitutional executive order. He is a partisan demagogue. And he does lie about everything. Of course Americans feel this way about him. This is not an outlier in that sense. The findings of this poll are absolutely in keeping with every other poll. What do you think of Joe Biden? There's your answer. Where it differs is in the extent to which that matters relative to Donald Trump, which is the great big open question of our time. For some reason, we have decided on left and right to pick the two worst people we could possibly find and give them a chance of being president once again. I still think that on balance, the public is going to run through its litany of grievances with Joe Biden and re-elect him if the alternative is Donald Trump. But that doesn't change that this is how Joe Biden is seen. You cannot say but Donald Trump in any other context other than the binary choice that is presented in an election. The second the election is over, the American public gets to judge you based on who you are and what you do. There's no but Donald Trump when they're looking at inflation or the interest rates that we are using to try to beat it. There's no but Donald Trump when they're looking at what happened in Afghanistan or they're looking at the border or they're looking at the illegal student loan order. This is all about Joe Biden. And I don't think that he's going to fix it. I think Joe Biden's one lifeline, and I use that word advisedly given his senility, is Donald Trump and his continued popularity within the Republican Party. Other than that, he's got nothing. There is nothing in that poll or any other that is good for him. He doesn't even have honesty anymore. When he came into office, people said, mm -hmm. all right, he's honorable and he's honest. At last, we have somebody back in the White House who tells no, that's gone. His trustworthiness numbers are at about 33%. And here is the one thing that would worry me if I were the Democrats. That same poll showed a rehabilitation of Donald Trump's reputation. Yes. Now, again, if it's an outlier, it's probably not the case, as the poll argues, that it's 48 to 49, disapprove, approve uh, of his presidency. But the fact that it is anywhere close to parity shows you that time heals, that the indictments have clearly not had quite the effect that they were expected to, and that when push comes to shove, people do care a great deal about material conditions. Yes. And if they look back in big enough numbers and say, well, you know what? The guy is a train wreck, but the economy was good in 2019. The border was secure. And we were in a better position geopolitically. Katie, bar the door. Yeah, so Jim, that, that's where I was going to go with you, the, the Trump nostalgia. And it, it, there, been, there, there was at least one other finding in another poll that was the same thing, that in, in retrospect, no, I, I think, um, no, another poll asked, who's, who accomplished more? You know, D Donald Trump and his four years or Joe Biden so far? And, 
and Trump was ahead. So it, it's just uh, extraordinary the, the amount of time that was, was spent hammering home January 6th. And that's not the that's not the first thing a, a lot of people are thinking of uh, when it comes to, to Donald Trump. And our friend Jeff uh, Blehar had a good post on this Trump nostalgia yesterday and a point he made that I hadn't hadn't seen made by anyone else is, you know what, if Trump had just said, uh, I, I hate this, but I lost, he might well be ahead of Joe Biden, really, by 10 points right now. Yeah. Um, when that poll came out and everyone was like, outlier, outlier, I went back and I looked at the other head-to-head polls this past month. Uh, there are four of them that have a tie. Uh, the Harris poll had Trump up by five. That's, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are a bunch of polls that had Trump up by one, Trump up by two. So and the other thing, which I think is a really probably very useful measuring stick here. That Washington Post poll had Biden's job approval rating at 37%. Now you look at the all aggregate at uh, 538, it's at like 40, 41%. So on that measurement, it was a worse poll for Biden than usual, but not by much. So that kind of, you know, so when you say, ah, it's an outlier, well, is it an outlier by like 10 points or mm-hmm. is it an outlier by like five points? Yeah, and the and you, don't get, you don't get an outlier that has you ahead by ten if you're really down by ten, right? Right. Yeah. So you look at that and you're like, okay, at minimum this is tied or very close, and it's not crazy to think Trump maybe he's ahead a little outside of the margin of error, maybe that four or five point range. That's you know, maybe, sometimes that what looks like an outlier turns out to be just the first poll to pick up on a shift in the electorate. And while I don't necessarily think that's what's going on, one is that. You know, look, the economy is not good right now. That's what today's morning jolt is all about. Like, you know, um, Wall Street Journal had a great story today about how all those high interest rates are really starting to have a pinch on people, If they, particularly if they happen to be in the uh, market to buy a house, market to buy a car. Sure, that's not all Americans, but that's a chunk of Americans. Sooner or later, almost everybody wants to either buy a car or buy a house. And there are just some devastating quotes from economists who say that right now, between inflation and the high interest rates, The average American family can't afford to buy a house. The average American family can't afford to buy a new car. Like, those are economic conditions that kill first-term presidents. Now, I'm not calling for Biden to be killed, right? But just like that's that's just a circumstance you can't overcome from. Now, the other dynamic that I think is safe to say is that it's not like, you know, Donald Trump has changed at all in the last couple months. He's as crazy as he ever is. He's made a reference to... Uh, General Milley committing treason and how in olden days that would have been dealt with death, you know, and he's, uh, R. Phil Klein had this, you know, uh, pointed out the the horrific message uh, uh, Trump had put out during the Jewish holiday about how disloyal liberal Jews had betrayed America. Uh, you look at his truth social, he's as crazy as he ever is. It's worth noting that Trump's cra- Trump saying something crazy doesn't get the coverage it used to. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thankful for that because I do think it was not good for the country where every time he you know, went on some rant on social media for 24 hours, it was treated as the biggest news story yeah. in the country. We, we, we had a most- huge, huge Mark yeah, Milley but, news yeah. cycle. Jim, there's right, a the flip that. side here in my view. I think he's much crazier than he has been and I think he's getting away with it because he's not on Twitter, because he's in this yeah. siloed no, social I, media network that nobody is on. Yeah. I think that's well, one what I'm reason to, why we're seeing polls where it's competitive. Uh, you know, the question is, Trump wins the nomination or gets close to winning the nomination. Do these statements get covered more? And do, you know, the electorate who's currently feeling, you know, having nostalgia about the pre-COVID economy, 
you know, all of a sudden sees Trump ranting about, you know, he's going to, you know, investigate NBC News for treason or any of those other things. Like, oh, that's why. Oh, that that's why we voted exactly. against this guy. Yeah, what a pain he was. You know, uh, if he would just stop saying that kind of stuff, you know, we, you know, and they just they, they turned back against him. Now the thing is, is that I think looking at these conditions, it's very hard to see people like warmly embracing Joe Biden again. That that this is going to be another hold your nose and begrudgingly vote for Joe Biden. Um, as you had noted in a corner post, Charlie, just the sheer bizarre situation in that such a huge percentage of the American electorate doesn't think Biden will live through a second term. Like that, you know, it's not just like, you know, oh, well, yeah, you know, like they just, they just don't think he's good. He's, he's got it in him. And so um, the only way Biden can win reelection is by Trump being super toxic and being the Republican nominee. Gee, what would the world look like if Republicans wanted to nominate somebody else? Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. DeSantis, any of those other folks. Um, and of course, the only person who Trump might be able to beat is the doddering old man who turns 81 next month, or in, in a little mm-hmm. more than a month. Yeah, so Nikki Haley, a couple of polls has been ahead of Biden by five points. Now, I, I wouldn't take that yeah. to the bank, right? She's just sort of stand-in generic Republican at this point, but it just shows if, uh, if Republicans could run someone without uh, major vulnerabilities I mean, and huge baggage. If Republicans nominated Nikki Haley, wouldn't that force the Democrats' hand that Biden can't run another term? But that, there's maybe I'm just like skeptical. Like what? The, what the mech? When? When would that happen? You know, would they? So uh, Nikki Haley noses Trump's at, Trump out. You know, miraculously. You know, and what the primaries end in June or something, and then they'd switch out Biden, and per- and conceivably Harris too. But how, how they, they he, just, Oh, he's not just feeling well. Not, oh, that health problem. Just say I'm not. I'm not running again, and then the convention would decide. I think so. Like considering how quickly the party came together behind Biden against Sanders when you know in March 2020, the idea of them suddenly getting together behind Newsom, Whitmer, or uh, you know Whitmer and uh, you know any combination of Midwestern governors, you know that they could they they would do it. They would, they would make it happen, I, I suspect, if it was Biden against a significantly younger, more energetic, confident, competent, non-crazy Republican nominee. But we don't need to worry yeah. about that because Republicans are hell-bent on nominating mm-hmm. Trump. I mean, the same no, collective action problem afflicts Democrats as much as it does Republicans. The, there's the note that you made about Nikki Haley doing especially well relative to Joe Biden now that they're testing her in head-to-heads, and nobody else really, very, very rarely – suggests that the electability argument still pertains. It's one to which Ron DeSantis cannot lay claim. Ron DeSantis underperforms Donald Trump in head-to-heads against Joe Biden, so which has buoyed the argument that Donald Trump is the strongest candidate against him. But it is the conventional conservative running a conventionally conservative campaign who is, in fact, outperforming both. Next question to you first, Charlie Cook. Who would you rather be at this juncture, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? <laughs> I simply can't answer that. It's a preposterous question because the answer <laughs> is pass. <laughs> Jim Garrity. So, in sheer political terms, in electoral terms, who would you rather be? So, in this scenario, do, like, do I get to mind control the person and I get to be that person or. Do I just have to like who, who's, who has a better chance of, of winning the, the presidency? Jo- Joe Biden. Let's put it that yeah. way to uh, <laughs> Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Biden, because I think when Trump's the nominee, the media will begin saturation coverage of every crazy thing he says. And the country will say we can't do this. And we get 
a dynamic similar to the 2022 midterms, where even though Biden was very unpopular, right track, wrong track numbers were terrible, people were very sour on the economy, they picked Democrats over crazy Trump-style uh, GOP nominees. No. Jim's exactly right for that exact reason. I saw Donald Donald Trump benefits from not having this coverage, as, as uh, Charlie said, not just because of his true social stuff. He's on this trail, minimally. He's not very often on the trail. But I saw him on the stump the other day railing against Jeb Bush for taking us into Iraq and Afghanistan. Real For real. 77 is not that far off from 82. And he's lost a step. And he will continue to lose a step. And as Jim said, voters subordinated their concerns about the economy in 2022 to the unpalatability of candidates. They did the same in 2020. Donald Trump lost despite having very high economic approval ratings. So yes, and then, of course, we're likely to get at least one of these criminal trials over the course of 2024, at which point Americans will be treated to saturation coverage in intimate detail of every criminal allegation against Donald Trump, and it will dominate the news coverage. They will be very familiar and acquainted with the allegations against him. So Joe Biden has a lot of structural advantages he can count on if Trump is the nominee. Yeah, I'd rather be Biden, but not not by not by a lot. With that, let's go to our second sponsor this episode, Bambi. When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. Say somebody isn't showing up when they're supposed to. Well, you better talk to Bambi with Bambi. Get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. With Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 a year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in editors under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. And you, spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E.com. Bambi.com. Type in editors under podcast. Please check it out. So Charlie, Bob Menendez, indicted on corruption charges. The... um, the, the, the huge uh, packets of cash in his uh, suit pockets, uh, a little suspicious. Same thing with the gold bars. So as a, um innocent until proven guilty guy, how do you think of the question of whether he should resign? You've had uh, basically everyone, in every elected Democrat in New Jersey, more or less, saying he should resign. You've had John Fetterman saying he should resign. Uh, so a, a, a lot of calls there, just given the shock value of um, the, those pictures we, we saw of the cash and, and the gold and just how, how gross these allegations are. But in, in your view, should, should he have to resign or should he resign? I find this quite difficult. It doesn't look good for him, does it? It is almost the equivalent of standing over the body with a dripping knife saying i'm glad i killed the bastard that said he says he didn't do it now the way he said that has at times been quite annoying i thought it was particularly funny that he suggested that he was being framed for being hispanic but he said he didn't do it and you know i have never liked the argument as our listeners and readers will know from my contributions during the 
Kavanaugh contretemps that there is a profound difference between the way that we should treat people in criminal proceedings and the way that we should habitually treat them culturally, or that one has a right to a trial but not a right to public office. And the reason for that is that I am keen not only to dissuade people from adopting a cultural standard of guilty before proven innocent, but I am keen to avoid what I see as some extremely perverse incentives within our politics. Which is to say that if we start forcing people to resign because they have been accused of something, we are going to get more accusations. If that argument is made, that you have a right to a trial, you don't have a right to be in the Senate and represent people because you are under investigation or because you've been accused of something, then we are moving toward a heckler's veto. At the same time, I do understand that there is a scale of accusations, that this is fairly high up on it, and that ultimately this becomes a political judgment call. I think Noah will make that case when he's asked the same question, that political parties have their self-interest at heart and should. But I also think political parties should stand for principles. So I find it quite difficult to say this guy needs to resign on the basis of an accusation alone, even though I do think that these accusations and the evidence that's been marshaled in support of them are strong. So I suppose I am on this a squish compared to probably everyone at National Review and a good number of Democratic senators too. So Jim, if, if I were Bob Menendez, assuming I'm, I'm guilty, right, and there's just not, not an innocent explanation for all this, what, he got a hung trial on his first corruption charge, if I remember correctly? After that, I would have been scared straight, you know, even if I'm a corrupt uh, SOB. It's like, I'm not going to risk jail again just, just for a little extra money, but here we are. It wasn't just money, Rich. It was gold bars. <laughs> um, apparently, he's getting bribed by the Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, the, so, by the way, when we point out bribery, like, that's really bad. <laughs> I would also point out, though, that like one of the allegations of this indictment is that he was steering U.S. policy and including conceivably foreign aid to Egypt in exchange for payments from Egypt. Like this is straight up being on the take to a foreign country. I believe he's automatically off the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which he had chaired uh, because of his indictment. But like, you know, I think it was our colleague Dan McLaughlin who said this. You, you can't be in that spot when with an accusation like this. Um that do you at minimum you got to step down from that committee because you're you're uh, when people when you take a vote when you take a stance people don't know if it's because you genuinely mean it or because some foreign government is bribing you to take that stance. Um, so, uh, you know, no, I, I you know like the I, I make the argument that uh, Menendez has always left a trail of slime wherever he goes, and yeah, he should have been convicted last time around. It's his luck that he got a jury that uh, was like was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Lo and behold, it's New Jersey. Um, but, uh, in this one, I mean, there's just so many specifics in this and his, the fact that his reflexive, like what the DOJ just made all this up, 
The Biden Department of Justice is going out of its way to go after a Democratic senator from New Jersey a year before an election year because he's Hispanic? Really? That's your defense? Extremely implausible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the guy doesn't learn. Uh, this is a, you know, this, this is, uh, let's observe the, the state of the U.S. Senate right now, okay? Because, you know, remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Mitch McConnell? And NR actually put out an editorial saying, look, we love you, Mitch, but this is really frightening, and maybe you shouldn't be the leader of Republicans in the Senate anymore. And, you know, McConnell could say if he wanted, hey, I show up and vote, I do my job, I'm not Dianne Feinstein. Dianne Feinstein, who's missed 47% of the votes so far this year, actually, I'm sorry, 40, uh, 48%, sorry, rounded down, um, you know, Feinstein could at least say, hey, at least I, I dress appropriately when I'm there. I'm not Fetterman. I'm not running around, you know, looking like a, uh, a you know, auto repairman as I'm running the Senate or something like that. And Fetterman, you know, when he came under criticism, went after Boebert. Boebert, of course, a whole bunch of them, like they all look good compared to Bob Menendez. And by the way, for that matter, Bob Menendez is still <clears throat> 81 indictments behind the former president. That's our leadership right now. So, Noah, if I were Bob Menendez, one lesson I would have taken from the last uh, 10 years or so is people can call on you to resign. They can't force you to resign and, and just, just stick it out. Well, I suppose that's a lesson you can take. You could take the lesson that the parties are just simply too weak to execute that sort of imperative. What that would look like is to say, listen— we're not going to support you. We're going to call on you to call, to step down in public. The wallets of all our donors are closed. This party will not advance your political objectives. Indeed, we will support primary opponents to you, and you will be humiliated. Your best, and this all happens behind closed doors, your best goal, right, your best outcome right now is to slink off the political scene with whatever reputation you have intact now. That used to be the norm. It was not, un, you know, New Jersey <laughs> in 2002 experienced something very similar to this with allegations far less serious than those that uh, Bob Menendez faces. And why this didn't happen in 2015 is because Chris Christie occupied the governor's mansion and a caretaker would have occupied that seat uh, as one did when Frank Lautenberg passed away for about six months, four months, I think, in 2013 before Cory Booker was elected to the U.S. Senate. I've seen a lot of commentary around this that suggests the parties should defer to the courts, should defer to the voters. They are they are vessels that merely mirror the sentiments of the electorate. And that is just simply, in my view, um, a, an act of cowardice. It certainly absolves the parties from acts of political hygiene that they would otherwise have to undertake, perhaps at the, to the frustration of their most partisan activists. But parties are not hostage to their voters. If they were to intervene in this process, it is not, as some commenters have said, a commentary on the guilt or innocence of the accused intervening in the process or perhaps even um, poisoning juries or uh, influencing juries. It is not that. Parties have one job, and that is to win elected office. They are empowered, even obliged, to jettison members who threaten that prime directive. The question that Dan raised, Dan McLaughlin raised in his uh, New York Post piece, I think is very important. Yes. Bob Menendez was ejected from his position in the Foreign Relations Committee as part of a bylaw, just a mechanism that kicks in when these sort of things happen, which is apparently so frequent that they need a bylaw to say that you shouldn't occupy this position if you're indicted. But why was he sitting there for the better part of a year, in fact, more than a year after his uh, home was raided in June 2022? Why did Chuck Schumer not know about this? 
Did the Justice Department not inform the Congress that this guy who sits at the top of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is being investigated for influencing U.S. policy and corruptly taking emoluments in the support of his political interests at the expense of American interests? Why was this allowed to happen for a year? And how is the press not aware of this? You know, the last time we had a raid on a very prominent public uh, office holder's mm-hmm. residence, it was national news yeah. the minute it happened. Where were the CNN cameras during this during this raid? Where were the tip-offs? <laughs> Why did this not happen? Why is this all coming to light now? The parties should be humiliated. The Democrats should be humiliated by their complacency here into ejecting uh, Robert Menendez from office. And it would be an act of salutary hygiene to do so. In fact, the country at large would would benefit from it. So no, I don't think that the parties are obliged to sit back and allow themselves to be buffeted by events. They are the masters of their own destiny and they need to start acting like it. So now let's stick with you for the exit question. Same format as the prior questions. Would you rather be Representative Andy Kim, the New Jersey congressman who has announced uh, that he's running in the primary against Menendez, or would you rather be Menendez? Okay, so this might be a very crowded primary. So Andy Kim is a relatively unknown Democratic representative. I think he's two cycles in, something like that. But he's very well liked in New Jersey, uh, and he's very well connected. But there are a lot of people who are testing the waters, apparently. David Wildstein is a very well-connected New Jersey reporter, reports that Phil Murphy's wife, who supposedly has a 72% name recognition in this state, I've never heard of her. I've lived here all my life, and I'm kind of plugged in. Um, but she's his top fundraiser, and she's testing the waters, apparently, for a primary. It's very rare that you get an open seat in a very safe blue state like this, and every Democrat is going to maybe see themselves in the mirror as a, as a U.S. senator. So Andy Quinn, first of all, anybody, I'd rather be anybody than John mm-hmm. than Robert Menendez. Menendez's support has disappeared, but there's going to be quite a lot of bites at this apple from uh, prominent Democratic officials in the state. And Andy Kim is certainly the most prominent to come out and, and said, declare his candidacy, but he's not going to be the only one. Charlie. Uh, I would rather be Kim at this point. Jim Gardy. Rich, I think this is the right episode for me to say that I refuse to play along with these scenarios you put in front of us. <laughs> in part because I've been working on myself, and honestly, I'm pretty happy who I am. I, I don't want to be someone else. I, I think I think if you go through life saying, oh, if only I could be Andy Kim, or oh, if only I could be... Well, first of all, you shouldn't want to be Robert Menendez. If only I could be Andy Kim. Right? Yeah. You know, like, no, be proud of yourself, Rich and Charlie and Noah and listeners. And like, is, be, don't Don't sit around saying, who would I rather be? No, you should want to be you. You do you. <laughs> Jim, if you don't answer the questions, the rich won't send you the gold bars. Sure, you'd rather be Kim because you're not facing due prosecution. Um, <laughs> there's that, you know. Uh, yeah, like that's that seems pretty straightforward. But like, uh, you know, in, in the end, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Of course, you'd rather be Kim. Yeah, you'd rather be Kim or anyone else besides Menendez. So with that, let me do a quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads. Your way, if you want to, you don't have to, to dig deeper into the NR community by commenting on articles and blog posts, by getting invites to exclusive Zoom calls with our writers and editors and various events around the country. So a great deal all around and a really important way to support our 
valuable journalism. So if you, you haven't signed up, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim, your kids are having a good week, even if you're not. Yeah. No, this was right at the end of the week. Uh, you know, you check in. How you doing? And uh, both my kids are, oh, my God, I had a surprise quiz. I don't know how I did. And, you know, my younger one said, yeah, actually, I had two of them last week. Got 100 on both, so you're feeling great. Uh, my older one... Uh, you know, start of the year, a little rattle in the engine in calculus class, AP calculus class. This you can, you know, Jim Bragg say so this is this is not an easy class. <laughs> Starts out of the gate, it's confusing. I'm like, oh, should we drop down to some other class? Get a note from the teacher. You know, your child's doing fine. You know, just don't worry, just keep studying. Here are my office hours. Come in. Ace is the next quiz. Now it's not a guarantee of everything, but I was just thinking about how, like, you know, eh, you know, nothing really, you know, all that special was going on on my end. But when your kids have a good day or a good couple of weeks, you just feel fantastic. It, it's almost it's, it's actually probably more important and better for you when they're having things break their way and go their way than it is for you. So that's that's the best thing that's going on on my end these days. Noah, you are teaching yourself piano? So regular listeners know that my um, brother is in the music industry, and he's had this baby grand piano that he's been trying to offload on me forever, and I've been resisting it. Because it's huge. And it just showed up at my house last week. <laughs> I was very frustrated with it. I didn't want it, but it had nowhere to go, so it was, it's now in my house. It's huge. But it's also very pretty, so I like it as a piece of furniture, I suppose. But it's gotta, something's got to happen with it. So I woke up on Sunday determined to savant my way through piano lessons. I don't want to learn music. I don't understand music. I don't know how to play music. I'm just going to like plunk at it until I start hearing tunes. And I find it actually pretty rewarding and not all that difficult to hear the chords and the notes that I want to play. And so I'm, 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 I find myself really attracted to it, and I've been doing it for several hours on end for the last couple of days. I don't know if it's going to last, but I'm, it's actually quite satisfying. Yeah, good for you. I, I went through a period where I tried to learn how to play guitar, and it's just so relaxing because just everything else goes out of your head. Yeah. It's a kind of amazing phenomenon. Charlie. Well, I didn't want to have to do the NFL game, but I think I'm going to. And I think this dovetails nicely with Jim Garrity's point about being happy when your children are happy, even if you're having a bad Sunday afternoon between 1 o'clock and 4.05. I just love how you just assume if you say NFL game, everyone knows it's the Jaguars. Like there was only one NFL game on Sunday. The NFL America's game. America's team. America's <laughs> team. The... Jaguars lost very badly to the Houston Texans. It was an absolute comedy of errors. And it was fairly depressing, but not for my children, who went to their first NFL game with me and my wife and braved the heat, which is considerable at this time of year in that stadium, and loved it. Even though the Jaguars lost, they got to see two touchdowns. One of them was right in front of them. They got to see the flyover and the national anthem and the halftime show and the cheerleaders. And they got to have hot dogs, and ice cream. So they had an absolutely fantastic time. And it really led me only to begin mourning the terrible performance on Monday. Because when your kids are as happy as they were, you can't really be too upset. So I was at, last night, a Susan B. Anthony event, the pro-life group here in Washington, D.C., and Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave the keynote at this dinner, and wow, she was just fantastic. I mean, she's relatable, winsome, 
and can tell a story. And if uh, Ron DeSantis had had some of these uh, qualities, he might be you know, ten points higher still in the polls. But I would uh, I would I would look out for uh, for twenty twenty eight. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, <clears throat> I could either go with you or Charlie, and I'm going to go with you, Rich. Um, what we when we look at the, the mess that is our current political scene, and why is Biden running at such an advanced age and, and all that stuff, a lot of it comes down to the, like if, if he had a competent vice president, if he had a vice president that people had faith in, this would be a no-brainer. Biden would say, I'm not serving another term, and the vice president would take over. Your column about Joe Biden making the worst vice presidential pick in the last 50 years, look, there have been a lot of columns saying, you know, Harris stinks. What you do is you go through history and you go back to Spiro Agnew and you go through kind of you know, just observing, well, wait a second. Okay, like we have had, you know, maybe, and, and Wallace, we've had comparably bad ones. But this is the crux. This is the moment. And the fact that you no Democrat is willing to stand up and say, no, Biden should resign. Harris should run uh, for the president in 2024 is a vivid indicator of it. It's a really good column. Thank you, Jim. It's all the more meaningful that I nosed out Charlie. So what was the Charlie piece? The Biden is a dud piece? Um, actually, it was this morning. Uh, and you know, Charlie's recent points about how there seems to be this like strange denial on the part of a lot of folks in the media that Biden's age is, one, a legitimate issue, and two, a serious political problem. Like the idea that like, it's somehow this right-wing spin machine is convincing Americas that Biden is old. Noah, what's your pick? Michael Brendan Doherty's. What Republicans should be doing instead? Um, MBD notes that Republicans seem to be barreling headlong towards a shutdown in pursuit of perhaps the noble goal, although one that will not be achieved by these tactics of reducing America's uh, spending obligations and uh, the associated interest payments on the debt. Rather, they should be devoting their attention, almost all their attention, to the crisis at the border. Uh, which is an issue that cuts in Republicans' favor and is a legitimate national disaster at this stage that nobody wants to talk about but Republicans. So if they don't, nobody else will. Uh, it's a good piece. Everybody should read it. Try. Mine is a short corner post by Dominic Pino, in which Dominic makes the case that the Republican infatuation with unions is a bad idea, that the Trump... I don't know what to call it. I suppose exhibition with the United Auto Workers is a bad idea that the United Auto Workers are not the friends of conservatives and shouldn't be the friends of conservatives and exist explicitly to oppose conservatism and promote progressivism and that it is bizarre, as Noah has also pointed out elsewhere, that we are in an era in which conservative politicians or putatively conservative politicians are lining up to ally themselves with a union that has fewer auto workers actually than, than other groups within it and that would knife them in the eye if it got half a chance. So my pick is also an MBD piece from the magazine, The War on Drugs is Necessary. And just NR has long been skeptical, if not outright opposed, to the war on drugs. And this is a great counter 
a great debate stirring peace. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, recount this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Maiden and Bambi. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.